You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. This man is perhaps the most well-known Christian in the history of the world. Perhaps the most celebrated, the most lauded. He wrote perhaps a quarter of the New Testament. He planted churches. He discipled future leaders of the church and mentored pastors who would carry on the gospel of God's grace in Christ. And we celebrate him. We memorize verses and chapters of the letters that he wrote. We believe that God is speaking to us through, you, through, through those books and letters uniquely. We celebrate him in art. We celebrate him by naming churches after him. We celebrate him by naming children after him. And it's easy, given his importance to focus on these favorable qualities, laudable qualities, and minimize his sins. The problem is, if we minimize his transgressions, then we begin to lose sight of the way God's grace was at work in the life of Paul the Apostle. And Paul never lost sight of that. Paul never lost sight on that. It can be somewhat shocking when we do consider his sins and his transgressions. I mean, after all, let's just, let's just paint a portrait of Saul. We hear about him in Acts. We hear about his life before he meets Jesus on that famous Damascus road. In places like Galatians, Paul talks about his life himself, right? In Acts, we've got Luke telling us about Paul's pre-Jesus life. And in Galatians, Paul tells us about his pre-Jesus life. In Philippians 3, he does a bit too. And he doesn't, he doesn't paint a rosy picture. I mean, we're told that this guy is responsible for the death and imprisonment of Christians. Right? So we've got a guy who's deeply religious who is legalistically committed to his religion. Not just like the stuff in the book, but extra stuff outside the book to help everybody make sure they get the book right. You know people like that, don't you? (laughs) It's like there's the stuff in the book, and then there's the stuff they add to the book to make sure you get the book the way they want you to get the book. And the book is the Bible. And Paul's that kind of guy. It's just extra layers of religion and religiosity and expectation layered on top of Scripture. And if you don't roll with that version, then you, there's a problem. And if you're particularly egregious, if you are pushing back and, and doing things that he thinks undermine a faithful interpretation of Israel's Scripture and history, well, the problem gets even more severe, and his response to that problem is even more severe. And so we're told at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, I mean, we meet Paul in Acts chapter 8, where he oversaw the death of a man. And then we learn more about him in Acts chapter 9, 
where not only is he overseeing the death of a Christian, he's now seeking warrants, authorization, paperwork, to go arrest more Christians. Put them in chains, bring them back. And so I wonder, as we're reading that, if you were thinking of modern-day analogies, like what are the kinds of people we come up with? Middle Eastern religious devotees who are willing to use violence to advance their cause. Anybody want to? I hear some whispers. Nobody wants to say it out loud, but everybody knows what we're thinking. Somebody said ISIS. You all remember those videos that were circulating a few years where, like, absolutely abhorrent, torturous ways of dying were procured? You get an ISIS kind of thing or an Al-Qaeda kind of thing, different religion, same modus operandi. This kind of extreme devotion that prompts violence. And it's a little bit disturbing to me to read Acts chapter 9 to be reminded that the guy God used to write a massive chunk of the Bible was one of those kind of guys. probably more than a little bit disturbing to think about Paul as a merciless persecutor of the people of God. Merciless. So the portrait in Acts is even more shocking because again and again and again we get Paul who everybody thinks he's an enemy and yet Jesus has a mission for him. And the point gets made again and again and again that where we see enemies, God sees mission. And just let that sink in. Where we see enemies of the gospel, God sees potential missionaries. And that can be a little bit off-putting at times. Amen? Because we'd rather everybody just be nice southern gentlemen and women. Who say please and thank you and open the door. Like that's the kind of Christians we want. Not the kind of people who used to, you know, go around killing people. Like ex-cons. Like that's not the kind of Christians we're typically looking for. And yet in Acts, where we see enemies, God sees mission. And we're going to work through this text and we're going to see that in almost every paragraph, that's the contrast. The human being in the story sees an enemy, and they're afraid. And Jesus says, I see the guy who's going to carry my name to the ends of the earth. So we start with the portrait we get of Paul. Our first encounter with Paul is at the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 8, verse, verse 1. And we've kind of hinted and played around this a little bit, but let's, let's, let's look at a couple of the details just to refresh our memory. Saul is said to approve of the death of Stephen. He's, he's there listening to all the stuff that's going on. So he's, he's in the group of people that Stephen is accusing, right? He kind of narrates his whole history of Israel and basically just calls everybody out. Doesn't invite them to repentance, just condemns them for rejecting the Messiah. And we learn that Paul, or Saul as he's known in the section of Scripture, is there and he's present and he approves of the stoning of Stephen that then takes place. And we're told that like, some of the people laid their coats 
at his feet, which suggests he has some position of authority, right? Maybe he's the one calling the shots. Maybe he's the one reminding people that heretics get stoned to death. And so he's standing there, and he approves, eight, in chapter 8, verse 1, of their killing him. So the first time we meet them, we've got Saul approving of Stephen's death, in contrast to Stephen, who is praying, Jesus, don't hold their sins against them. And maybe it's good for Saul that Stephen prayed that, because that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Jesus answers Stephen's prayer on the Damascus Road. Paul the persecutor is part of the impetus behind the persecution that breaks out, that spreads the gospel. Chapter 8, verse 1, that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Here's a little uh, Bible trivia tidbit for you if you're into Bible trivia tidbits. Every time Every other time the word persecution shows up in Acts, with this one exception, right? this is just kind of a severe persecution began against the church, and nobody, we're not told who's doing it, sort of implied. Every other time the word persecution appears in the book of Acts, Paul is the one doing it. Nobody else gets called a persecutor. Paul is the one doing it. Whether somebody's telling the story about him or he's telling the story about himself later, about his former life. Every time, with this one exception, and he's in the context here, isn't he? Every other time, it's Paul, the persecutor. Whether it's Jesus saying, why do you persecute me? Or Paul saying, I was once a persecutor of the church. He's the guy. And so the portrait, our first glance at this guy, chapter 8 on into chapter 9, is like it doesn't get worse than this, does it? It doesn't get worse than this. He is public enemy number one for followers of the way, for the church. And then Saul kind of fades out for a few verses, doesn't he? We hear about him, and then he fades out. And we start hearing about how the gospel is bearing fruit because of Saul's per and others' persecution. We hear about Philip and how he ministers and to some different people. And then we come back to Saul. And we begin to see how Paul is repeatedly portrayed as an enemy of the gospel and how despite those perceptions, Jesus has a plan for him. Paul is repeatedly portrayed as an enemy of the gospel and despite those perceptions, Jesus has a plan for him. Strikingly, the first person who perceives, Jesus, or perceives Paul as an enemy of the gospel is Jesus. Right, Damascus Road, Saul, chapter 9, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, right? First century religious terrorism, right there. State sanctioned even. Now he's going along the way on this road to Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he falls to the ground, and he hears a voice. He doesn't see anyone. He doesn't see anything for a few days. But he hears a voice. And the voice calls his name. This is verse 4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
And he asks, Who are you, Lord? Now that word Lord was used in a variety of the ways in the ancient world. Even like, like. But it was used in some specific ways too. For example, in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word Lord translated God's name. And one of the things that, that, that Paul has been denying and persecuting people for, one of the things he's going to preach later on in chapter 9 is that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. So before here, you've got you know, Paul putting distance between the Lord God and Jesus. But in this verse, all of a sudden, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Before he even knows the answer to the question, he knows he's dealing with his Lord. And the answer isn't merely Yahweh or God. The answer is, I'm Jesus. And we're invited to ask, like, ask the question, who is the Lord? Jesus is the Lord. What's the truth that Paul has been running from and battling against and transgressing in some of the most heinous ways? What truth has he been resistant to that now he has to come face to face with on this road in front of everybody? Jesus is Lord. He's run from it, and he cannot run from it anymore. And that, brothers and sisters, became his gospel. At the beginning of Romans, a few years later, he would write, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And it's the gospel about Jesus Christ, our Lord. The truth that he was running from was the truth of the gospel, and the first thing he gets confronted with on the road to Damascus is the gospel, the good news, Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is talking to him, that means the rest of the gospel is true too. Jesus is Lord, and God raised him from the dead. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? The reply came. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, you may think, he's been persecuting the church. Like, Jesus is off in heaven. But this, again, reminds us that heaven isn't some distant, faraway place where Jesus has kind of gone off, and we can't see him, and we're not really sure what he's up to, and, like, we've got our own troubles, and we've got our own business, and we've got our own mission. We're trying to get some things done. Maybe one day Jesus will come back. We don't know where he's off to. That's not the portrait we get here, is it? The portrait we get here is the mission of the church and the presence of Jesus are deeply intertwined. Like Jesus speaking to Saul on the Damascus Road, Jesus speaking from the throne of heaven. We just saw Jesus a few minutes before, right? At Stephen's death, and he was standing at God's right hand. Right? The, the image is that heaven and earth are deeply, deeply, deeply connected. Jesus is in heaven. The church is on earth. Jesus is sometimes visible to people like Stephen and audible to people like Saul. Not distant, deeply, deeply, deeply unified and present. Because remember, heaven isn't some distant place where you kind of hope you go one day, heaven is the control room. Heaven is mission control for the mission of the church. Jesus from heaven 
is exerting his sovereign lordship to the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, through his church. He's not far away. He identifies with his people. You mess with them, you mess with him. To the extent that if you persecute the church, if you are behind the severe persecution that breaks out against the church, you are persecuting Jesus. Because he's not far away, he is singularly identified with his people. Why do you persecute me? Paul doesn't (laughs) say much else. He's told by Jesus to get up and go into the city, and you will be told, he'll be told what to do. And so there's some men, they've heard this, they don't see what Saul sees, but they're speechless because they were not expecting this on the way. I mean, these are like his lieutenants. These are people who are probably pretty stoked that they're with Paul, who's an up-and-coming power player, and he's got papers and authorizations, and we can maybe ride his coattails to some, some power and authorizations ourselves. And all of a sudden, the Messiah shows up. They were not expecting that. And what's the, what's the thing that's going on here is that, that Paul is named by Jesus as an enemy, isn't he? Like When we talk about sin and forgiveness, right? forgiveness, which is what Saul is getting here, doesn't mean that his sin and transgression is sort of swept under the rug or minimized or, you know, well, it's not that big of a deal after all. You know, let's not talk about it. Let's just kind of pretend that didn't happen. Like, that's our posture to sin sometimes. But it's not Jesus' posture to sin. Right? And so the movement from enemy to missionary or from sinner to, to disciple doesn't take sin lightly like Jesus names it and personalizes it. You are persecuting not some sort of vague, disembodied idea. You are persecuting the one who is enthroned at the right hand of God, the resurrected Messiah. And so, the sin is taken seriously. It's not neglected. I think it's helpful for us because it helps us remember that that forgiveness is not about Jesus overlooking our sin. Forgiveness isn't about Jesus sort of minimizing our sin. If there's anything the cross teaches us, it's that Jesus takes our sin with the utmost seriousness. Because in that place, the consequences of my transgression, O'Reilly's transgression, are nailed into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the consequences of my sin, O'Reilly's sin, are pressed into the flesh of his brow. He takes this deeply serious. And you don't tell the man with scars on his face that he's just brushing it off to the side. No, he invites Saul to confess, to hear the truth. And in hearing the truth, he is enabled 
to begin moving from enemy to brother, from estranged enemy to missionary, from persecutor to preacher. But it doesn't come without the hard work of confession. Here's reality, Saul. You've sinned. And you're blind to it. So we're going to show you what blindness looks like for a few days. So your eyes can be open to the reality of your sin. And you need to grieve over it. And in that place of grief and sorrow, you will finally be able to experience grace. Jesus sees an enemy. The good news for us is where Jesus sees enemies, he also sees his mission. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His sin, as grave as it is, like the only guy who's called a persecutor in all of Acts, doesn't put him outside the scope of grace. And I wonder how many of us need to be remembered that our sins don't put us outside the scope of grace. Like there's no thing so bad that Jesus says, <laughs> I give up. And I wonder how many times we put other people outside the scope of grace. Maybe it's colleagues. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's our kids. Like, we just have this long history of enmity built up, and we just, we give, like, this is not going to get fixed. And we don't like them anymore, and we're, our hearts are hardened against those people, and maybe they're people in the church. Like, who knows? And maybe it's different for everyone in the room, but we know what it's like to have our hearts hardened against certain people, and when we allow our hearts to be hardened against certain people, we're beginning to envision them as a little bit further, a little bit closer to the edge of grace, and maybe one day they just go right over the, like, there's none left for them. And I wonder when I read this, like maybe the Spirit of God wants to say to His church, there's that person in your life who you do not want to pray for. <laughs> like most of us wouldn't say, well, you know, most of the time when we talk about praying for enemies, or at least my experience pastorally, Jesus talks about, you know, pray for your enemies. Most of the time that comes up in small groups or kind of church settings, people go, I don't have enemies. And I go, right, yeah. You say that. But who's your heart hardened against? Like, who's that person who's you know, out to get you at the job? Or maybe you're retired and they were out to get you 20 years ago and your heart's still hard. I don't have enemies. No one. Like if Saul is not outside the bounds of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, neither are the people against whom our hearts are hardened. And maybe the way we respond to this isn't by having our own Damascus Road experience. I mean, we're here because we're trying to be followers of Jesus, right? But maybe the way we respond to this is by saying, you know, 
if Saul could treat Jesus that badly and Jesus still loves him, maybe this person in my life who's treated me so horrifyingly unjustly and badly, maybe the grace of Jesus is big enough and strong enough to put some love in my heart and life for that person. Where we see enemies, Jesus sees the mission. And sometimes the mission to that person starts with my prayer for them. Especially when I don't want to pray for them. Jesus names it, Saul's an enemy. But that doesn't mean his story is over. And that's still true. And then we meet Ananias. <laughs> I just want you to put yourself in Ananias' shoes, all right? Like, your life is fine. You've heard that the church is getting persecuted in some places, but that's over there. It hasn't gotten bad where you are yet. You've heard that maybe Saul is coming around, but you're just, you know, you're, you're over here, and you're kind of off the beaten path, and you just want to keep yourself and kind of keep your head down, and maybe he'll get, just miss you or something, right? And then Jesus shows up, and you have a vision. And the Lord says, Ananias, and he says, here I am, Lord. That sounds familiar. It's got kind of an Isaiah feel, doesn't it? Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, oh yeah, I know Judas, I heard about Judas. Look for a guy named Saul, and you can imagine Ananias in that moment. Yeah, a vision from Jesus. Here I am, Lord. <laughs> Who will go for us? Send me, send me. I need you to go preach to Saul on second thought. <laughs> Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias. Ananias is saying, you know, that's not my first name. <laughs> He's seen a vision of a man named Ananias. And then that man's going to come and lay his hands on him. He's going to regain his sight. And Ananias responds, you know, a minute ago, it was, Lord, send me. Here I am. And now it's, Lord, you know, I've heard about this guy, how much evil he does against your saints. <laughs> and what does Ananias see? He sees an enemy, doesn't he? He sees an enemy. And here I am, turns to, I'd like to stay put, if it's okay with you, Lord of all creation. Thanks very much. Again, notice how deeply Jesus is involved in the life of... Like, he's not far away. He's not distant. He is appearing. He is present. He is communicating. He is working to, to navigate his church like a general in a battlefield who says, like, you know, flank them this way and send a group over that. Like, I don't know the terms. Some of you guys who've done that know the terms. But you get the idea. He's involved. He's calling the shots. He's working. Go here. Go there. I'm at work for the kingdom, not distant, I'm present. So Ananias tries to back out of it. Lord, I've heard about this guy, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. This is like Jesus saying, hey man, why don't you go be a missionary to Osama bin Laden? We've all been thinking it. I'm going to say it. Who wants to sign up for that? No hands. We'll give some change to first choice. <laughs> but missionary to people with machine guns, mm, maybe not. 
You might think, preacher, that's uncalled for. (laughs) And maybe it is. But the question is, do you want the Bible to come to life in your life? And that's the kind of thing we're dealing with. Ananias didn't want to go because he was scared of his enemy. He was scared he would be walking into a trap. He was scared that, like, I'm trying to avoid this guy, and Jesus wants me to go pray for him, and he's the guy authorized to arrest me and throw me in a cage. No. Isn't it interesting how the Bible just reveals things about human beings that we don't want to admit? Yeah, I'll pray for my enemies. Why don't you go pray for them in person? (laughs) I'd rather pray for them from a distance if it's okay with you, Jesus. But we don't get to mess around with that, do we? Jesus, Ananias sees an enemy. Jesus sees the mission, and that's what he says. Go. Can I stay? Go. Why? Because he is an instrument I have chosen to bring my name before the nations and kings, and before the people of Israel. Ananias sees an enemy, and Jesus is 100% focused on the mission of the kingdom of God. He never takes his eyes off of the kingdom. He never takes his eyes off of the mission. And he doesn't care whether we don't like the people he calls us to be in mission to. I mean, this like. Jesus' response to Ananias is, get over it, dude, and get to work. And I wonder how many times Jesus has said that to me and I haven't been paying attention. Ananias is focused on the enemy. Jesus is focused on the mission. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias now goes. And he goes into the house, and he touches the man he feared. He lays his hands on him, and he prays to the man he thinks is enemy. Not from a distance, in person. May you regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a prayer. Not a long prayer. Doesn't need to be. Immediately, something like scales fall from Saul's eyes, and his sight was restored, and not just his physical sight, but he sees everything clearly now, doesn't he? And the next thing he does, verse 26, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus. And I want us to think about this, friends. Like, like if we get so focused on the circumstances Whatever they are. Like, I don't like that person. They don't even have authority to arrest me. I just don't like them. I don't want to pray for them. I don't want to pray with them. And yet Jesus uses that to advance his mission. And all of a sudden, the guy who used to persecute us is now proclaiming the one he persecuted. Again, the gospel is counterintuitive. It doesn't work the way everything else works. It's not, like, it doesn't make sense on conventional terms. But Jesus isn't a conventional Lord of everything. He's unique. And he's our God. And everyone who heard Saul was amazed 
Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Is this not the man who made havoc? They saw the enemy, didn't they? And they were amazed that Jesus could turn an enemy into a missionary. The people of Damascus feel the tension. And finally Saul, making enemies of himself, goes to Jerusalem. And we're told when he gets to Jerusalem, he attempts to join the disciples. Like, imagine what this is like, right? He left Jerusalem with papers to arrest disciples. He gets back going like, hey, what time's church? <laughs> and they're like, we're not telling you, man. Like, that's what, what's going on here, you know? They don't believe him. They think he's their enemy. They see an enemy. He attempted to join the disciples. They were afraid of him. No kidding, they were afraid of him. Understatement of the millennia. They were afraid of him. They didn't believe. They didn't let him in. You can't come here. Get out of here, man. They didn't believe he was a disciple. But some guy named Barnabas knows the story, and they trust Barnabas. And so he takes him to the apostles. He says, look, this is what happened. We're on the way to Damascus. Jesus shows up, and apparently we see enemies, but Jesus sees the mission. And now this guy who was formerly persecuting us is now all over the place making enemies, talking about the gospel. And the apostles, the apostles believe. And everyone begins to learn again and again and again that where they see enemies, Jesus sees the mission. Where they see enemies, Jesus sees his mission. I can only imagine that as those scales fell from Saul's eyes, that the reality that this is the crucified and resurrected Lord must have weighed on him. This is the Lord who takes his sin so seriously that his body was broken and his blood was shed. This is, this, this is the Saul who later put his name on a perhaps the most famous letter in the history of the world, and who said these words. This is the man who wrote this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he knows he's not writing about somebody else. He's writing about himself. Indeed, Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, and this is the gospel, by His blood we have been saved, justified. And we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. How personal is that for Paul? 
I mean, what's he thinking when Jesus shows up on the Damascus Road and all of a sudden he can't see? What's he thinking? Is the wrath of God coming down on my head right now? And then we hear these words, for while, listen to it, while we were enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. Nobody knows what it's like to be an enemy of God better than Paul. None of us know what it's like better than Paul. So there's two questions. Who are my enemies? And none of those silly, oh, I don't have any enemies answers. Who is my heart hardened against? And who does Jesus want me to pray for? Who's my mission? And then the second question, am I still God's enemy? And if I am, have I thrown myself on the perfect love and mercy of the one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for me? In a moment, we're going to come to the table. And Jesus is going to say to his church, this is my body. This is my blood. And we'll have an opportunity as the bread touches our lips to make sure that our lips are praying for the people we perceive to be enemies of the gospel. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.